Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 323 of Forgotten Classics, where we continue with O Murderer Mind by Norbert Davis, featuring Doan and Carstairs, one of the best detective duos ever, and the funniest and the most unusual, but we'll get to them in a minute. I don't have a podcast highlight this week. I tried out a couple of new ones, but mm, no, it was a bust. But what I do have is a recommendation for a couple of stories that you may not have read for a long time. And I know I haven't read them for a long time. It's October, and it's time to reread The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, both by Washington Irving, and just iconic pictures of early American life and storytelling. Also, you know, great Halloween stories. As I was rereading these, I was reminded again of how evocative and descriptive Washington Irving's writing really is. You do not think of it that way. We think of the very stripped-down basics of the stories. But there are some descriptions in these that are just amazing of what the countryside's like, of how the people lived, even of the way they treated each other. And some of it, of course, is very recognizable because people don't change that much. And some of it is hmm, of the time. You know, the schoolmaster is going to beat up on the kids. This is just how it was back then. They are going to expect if they don't do well, he's going to give them a beating. It did make me think how much I wanted to read these stories out loud. And so I think after we finish Oh, Murderer Mine, then I'm going to read these stories for you guys. I just love them. And I was surprised to see I did not have them read already. My memory is starting to fail about the short stories I've read. We are on episode 323, after all. So you can look forward to that coming up. We only have a few more weeks of Oh, Murderer Mine, because it's only six chapters long. Some of those chapters are packed with action. And that's the case with the one coming up today. The one last week was not so action-packed. It was a lot of filling in the backstory. I have to say, I really did enjoy the story of why Trent is married to Heloise, being up on that Arctic weather station, and she's the only woman he's seen in years. And it was a huge mistake. (laughs) I also really enjoyed Shirley Parker coming along and asking everybody questions and then saying, Oh, you're perfectly normal. Especially when Doan's going, no, I don't have a problem killing anybody. You know, they pay me. I'm fine with it. And she's like, oh, fine. You're normal too. Do you know many murderers? And so he describes it. She goes, Ugh, no, too common. So nobody is going to be weird enough for her because they're all out in society. And also, we get Doan giving us more of Heloise's background, and it is really not what you expect, right? She's such a mover in society, or at least that's how it seemed to me. And then to find out she came from a carnival background, 
it made me remember that these stories are always packed with super quirky characters. So if there's a character that hasn't seemed quirky enough yet, just wait, it's coming up. And speaking of that, we are going to go to downtown LA and go to the spa. Are you ready? Yeah, me too. Let's dive in. Murderer Mine by Norbert Davis Chapter 4 The Sunset Strip is a section of the county, not incorporated into the city of Los Angeles, which points like an accusing finger directly at the heart of Hollywood. It is inhabited by actors and actresses and their exploiters or victims, and by people who have been run out of Beverly Hills, and by bookmakers, saloon keepers, unsuccessful swindlers, antique dealers, and interior decorators of one kind or the other, but mostly the other. It is considered quite fascinating by the sort of people who like to go on bus rides through the Bowery. Heloise of Hollywood had a building all of her own in the center of this streamlined slum. The building featured glass, brick, and chrome, and pink plaster, and dainty gestures in the air, and taken overall, it was as slick and as screwy as one of Salvador Dali's copyrighted hallucinations. There had been a certain amount of opposition to Carstairs' presence on the bus, and Melissa was feeling a little frazzled out when she went up the steps and pushed open the pink-padded door that was billed as the Pathway to Perfection Entrance. "'Well, for goodness sakes, come on,' she said impatiently. Carstairs ambled up the steps and looked inside. He grunted, and the hair stood up on his back. Melissa kicked him. "'Go on!' Carstairs went in, reluctantly. Melissa followed him, and her hair stood up, too. The foyer was a passageway about five miles long and lined with mirrors. These weren't distortion mirrors. Not quite. They were just very, very clear and brilliantly lighted, and they magnified matters just enough. Melissa watched herself walk, because there was nothing else she could do. She saw herself highlighted from fore to aft, and from top to bottom, and from some other odd and interesting angles. It was the most sadistically efficient sales promotion for beauty treatments she had ever run across. Even Carstairs had begun to cringe by the time he had reached the mirror door at the end. Melissa held it open for him, and they entered a plush-lined cubicle which featured a tall, round ebony desk placed in its exact center. There was a girl behind the desk, and she was beautiful. She really was. She had black, glistening hair, and a corpse-like pallor, and a face so perfectly contoured it was frightening. Women who look like this usually sound like crows, but this one had been trained. Her voice was soft and insinuatingly confidential. How do you do? She said as though she were actually interested. May I help you? I think so, said Melissa. Can you do something about my cheek? Your cheek? Yes, right here. My husband beat me last night. Of course. Do you wish it to look worse or better? What? said Melissa. The girl smiled at her. These incidents happen so rarely to some of our more unfortunate clients that they often wish to capitalize on them when they do. 
Capitalize, Melissa repeated. The girl moved her right hand casually, and the big diamond on her fourth finger sparkled. Oh, said Melissa. No, no, I want it to look better. It always irritates my boyfriend when my husband beats me, and I want the two of them to stay pals. Naturally. May I have your name? Susan Halffinger. And who is sponsoring you? Sponsoring? Oh, T. Ballard Bestwick, he's the president of... Oh, we know T. Ballard here. You do? Melissa said, startled. Oh, of course, his wife. Wife? said the girl, just as startled. Oh, yes, yes, indeed, his wife. Hmm, said Melissa thoughtfully. Would your dog like something to play with while he is waiting? We have some very enchanting rubber mice that squeak. No, Melissa said judicially. I don't believe he'd care for that sort of thing. Then if you'll just step into the anteroom through that door, yes, our bruise specialist will be prepared for you in just a few short moments. Thanks, said Melissa. She opened the door and ushered Carstairs through it into a long, narrow room cluttered with dusty pink lounges with scrolled gilt legs. There were three fat women sitting in a row on one of the lounges. The one nearest bounced up and down and pointed a pudgy, admiring finger at Carstairs. Ooh, look! The middle one patted her hands and cooed. Darling, said the third one, just delicious! Carstairs backed up against Melissa. Melissa pushed him away and sat down on one of the lounges. Carstairs crept up and huddled against her legs. He's so pretty, said the nearest fat one. Yippee, 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 tweet, said the middle one. Those divine brown eyes, said the third one. Carstairs moaned in a soft, terrified way. Another door opened and a girl looked in. This one was a cool, tall blonde. She was dressed in a white uniform, but it was white silk and it had been made just for her. She looked like nurses should look, but never do. Miss Halffinger, she said. She waited for a moment and then said more pointedly, Miss Halffinger. Eh? said Melissa. Oh, yes. She got up and started for the door. Carstairs started right after her. You stay here, Melissa ordered. Carstairs stared at her in incredulous dismay. Lie down, Melissa said. Wait. Carstairs whimpered piteously. Melissa stamped her foot. Lie down. Carstairs began to fold himself up reluctantly. Yippee, yippee, cooed the middle fat one. Just too precious, said the third fat one. Melissa closed the door and followed the blonde down a passageway that had dark brown cork flooring and beige walls and a yellow ceiling. Along each side, at staggered intervals, there were doors curtained with white oiled silk. From inside of the rooms came sharply distinct slaps, the grisly cracking of reluctant joints, retchings and gaggings and moans and sobbing pleas for mercy. Melissa and her guide turned a corner and went past a hideous place full of malignantly boiling serpents of steam vapor and pinkly parboiled things that squeaked and gibbered in their agony. Right in here, 
said the blonde, swishing aside one of the oiled silk curtains. This wasn't a cubicle. It was as large as an ordinary hotel room. It contained a desk and a chair and a couch equipped with smelling salts and a telephone. It was as obtrusively antiseptic as an operating amphitheater. Just take off your clothes, said the blonde. The shower is behind that door. What? said Melissa. Wait a minute. My husband fights fair. He just pasted me one. He didn't kick me after I was down. The path to perfection, said the blonde, lies in the complete realignment of all the component parts of the body to express the poetry of true beauty. Okay, said Melissa. The towels are on the table. The water is electronized and energized. I will return. Do that, said Melissa. She took off her clothes and put on a rubber bathing cap that came in a sealed cellophane container. She opened the frosted door the blonde had pointed out. The shower was about eight by eight, all black shiny tile, and was worked by a control panel as complicated as a transport plane's. Melissa twisted some knobs and turned others for a while and finally got the right combination. There were approximately 1,000 water jets of varying capacity and intensity, and some of them apparently gave out cologne instead of water. Melissa walked right in and luxuriated. She stayed until she began to feel washed away, and then came out and selected one of the towels. It was as big as a bedsheet and as fluffy as a cloud. Melissa was all tangled up in it when she heard the first scream. She didn't pay any attention. Immediately, there were some more screams. They were very loud, terrorized screams in different voices that blended in a sort of chromatic progression that was not unpleasing to the ear. Melissa stopped rubbing to listen. The screams kept mounting in volume and in pitch, and now there were some other noises, metallic clanging and the crash of shattered glass. And through all this, as a sort of minor undertone, something was howling. Melissa suddenly isolated that last sound and identified its source. She ducked out into the hall, dragging the towel behind her. The screams now were multitudinously deafening. They had begun to echo and meet each other in midair. The air began to quiver and palpitate. Carstairs spun around the corner down the hall, leaning far over and scrabbling for his footing. His mouth was wide open, and he was making a lot of noise. Here, said Melissa, waving the towel. She wasn't wearing any clothes, and she still had her bathing cap on. She was just another naked woman. Carstairs wailed and skidded and hiked back around the corner. The screaming redoubled. Melissa ran, trying frantically to wrap the towel around herself. She reached the corner. There were screams to her right and screams to her left and screams in front of her, undulating in weird concatenation. Their intensity seemed to center toward the left. Melissa went that way. She turned into a long, low room where sun lamps coiled like chromium cobras among women who screamed and squirmed and clutched at themselves. She ran through another room where women writhed helplessly in the metallic grip of permanent wave machines. She got out into another hall in time to see car steers hurtle gracefully over a pile of whooping casualties. Melissa fought and clawed her way over cringing, sweaty bodies and made it out into the clear again. Carstairs had hit a dead end and was on his way back, running with desperate, diving effort. Stop, you! Melissa shrieked. She swooped at him, arms spread. 
Carstairs dodged and whipped sideways through a curtained doorway, and Melissa went right after him. It was a low-ceilinged, dank room with a white-tiled floor and walls that glistened damply. Carstairs was headed for the door at the other end. Right in front of this door, there was an oblong opening in the floor, a little longer and a little wider than a grave. It was filled to the brim with something black and malignantly slick. Carstairs intended to jump over it. His foot slipped. He yelled, one last lorn note of utter desperation. He fell full length in the mud bath, and the mud bath went off in an explosion that splattered the whole room and everything in it, including Melissa. Carstairs was incapable of making any more noise, but he wasn't defeated. Even now, he scrambled frantically to get out. Melissa wiped the mud out of her eyes and hit him with her fist in the approximate spot she judged his head was. Stop! Stop! Carstairs couldn't stop. He got out of the mud bath, carrying most of its contents on him. He got out through the door, staggering, and bumbled down another hall with Melissa scrambling and grabbing after him. The door at the end of the hall was closed. Carstairs lunged and hit it with his remaining strength. The door popped open. Carstairs fell into the anteroom. The three fat ladies were long gone. Carstairs was trying feebly to crawl under one of the dusty pink lounges when Melissa landed on him. Carstairs! she shouted furiously. She dug through the mud and found an ear and jerked it hard. I'm me! I'm here! Carstairs blubbered at her in pitiable relief. He tried to sit in her lap. Melissa punched him. Behave yourself, you fool! There were knees digging into her back, and Melissa brushed at them absently. Get away and give me room to... What? She turned her head slowly. Eric Trent was sitting on the lounge. His mouth was open. There was one of those silences... Melissa suddenly remembered her towel. She pulled it up higher. That was bad. She pulled it down lower. That was not good either. Turn around, you gaping idiot, she snarled. Trent behaved as though he hadn't heard her. There was a look on his face that was half a smile of amusement and half an expression of artistic appreciation. Gosh, Melissa, he said. You've got a pretty nice, uh, you look pretty wonderful... Um, what I mean is... I know what you mean, Melissa spat. So this is what those years on an icicle or iceberg or whatever did to you, is is it? Ogling, helpless, unclothed women? She scraped a handful of mud off her thigh and hurled it at him. Didn't you hear me? I said turn your head. A glob of mud struck Trent on the nose. He turned his head so fast his neck clicked. Melissa rewound her towel. All right, she told him. Trent looked at her and swallowed. Did you have an accident or or something? Me, said Melissa. Oh, no, I do this sort of thing all day, every day. Trent swallowed again. I see. Melissa took off her bathing cap and slapped at him viciously with it. Why do you always have to be sneaking around and spying on me? Trent blocked the blow with his arm. I am not sneaking around, and I am not spying on you. 
You liar! Don told you I was coming here, so you had to come snooping. Don didn't either tell me you were coming here. I had no idea you were. Poobah! I suppose you came to get a permanent wave. You don't need it. The one you have hasn't grown out yet. I came here, said Trent evenly, because my wife sent for me. That was very nice of you, Eric, said a new voice. It was a voice that was hoarsely hollow and smooth at the same time. It sounded a little like a billiard ball rolling down a rain spout. Melissa turned her head slowly again. This was Heloise of Hollywood. She was tall and erect and sleekly slim, and she had jade-green eyes. There wasn't a line in her face or a wrinkle on her neck, but she was fifty-four years old. No one could possibly have gotten as hard as she was in less than that time. The hardness wasn't a mask. It wasn't even striated. It was smooth and icy from the outside in and from the inside out. She radiated as much warmth as a diamond. She studied Melissa for a moment. Is that your dog? I'm responsible for him. Heloise nodded. I wondered if you'd lie again. What do you mean by that? Your name is Melissa Gregory, not Halffinger. My name is what I choose to call myself. Heloise shrugged indifferently. Quite. I know the dog. It belongs to Doan. It should be shot. It's mad, I think. It started on this rampage just because one of my more stupid customers who was waiting in here tried to tie a pink hair ribbon round its neck. That would make me mad, too. Heloise studied her again and then looked at Trent. I'm afraid your taste is deteriorating, my dear. She's a mess. Even her feet are dirty. They were. Trent wiped the mud off his nose with a finger and said, I wouldn't go too far if I were you, Heloise. Wouldn't you, Eric? Heloise asked, idly interested. No. They watched each other, and Melissa shivered. The receptionist came in from the foyer. Madame, there are two men outside. How very interesting, said Heloise. Both of them say they are detectives. They are handcuffed together. Send them in. Yes, madam. The receptionist had really tried hard, but temptation overcame her. She rolled her eyes in Eric Trent's direction and twitched her hips at him. In one smooth, deadly motion, Heloise picked up a heavy crystal ashtray and threw it. The receptionist shut the door quickly. The ashtray made a dent in it and then cluttered dully on the floor. Doan must be in trouble again, Heloise said casually. Humphrey shouldered through the door, dragging Doan along behind him. Hi, everybody, Doan said amiably. Shut up, Humphrey ordered, jerking on the cuffs that fastened his left arm to Doan's right. What's going on in this joint, anyway? I heard a lot of screaming. A couple of my customers got a little hysterical, Heloise told him. It sounded more like... 
Humphreys stopped and stared incredulously. <laughs> Look at that, will ya? <laughs> he collapsed against the wall, shaking helplessly with laughter. Heloise said impatiently, Take the dog inside and clean it, and maybe you'd better do a little work on yourself at the same time. Melissa groped through a crust of mud and located Carstairs' collar. She led him toward the inner door. When they reached it, Carstairs suddenly twitched the collar out of her grasp and turned around. His eyes were bright red. Humphrey stopped laughing. Carstairs turned around again and preceded Melissa through the door. Melissa slammed it emphatically behind her. Say, said Humphrey uneasily, I didn't like the way you looked at me just then. You thought about that a little bit too late, Doan said. Don't ever let him catch you up a dark alley. People who laugh at him often have fatal accidents. He caused plenty of accidents here, Heloise said. He ran wild through this place. He must have damaged a thousand dollars worth of equipment. That was naughty of him, said Doan. I shall speak to him severely. Not only that, but he caused a general attack of hysteria among the customers. Charge them for it. Heloise stared at him. You know, sometimes you act quite bright. She snapped her fingers. The receptionist opened the door and looked around its edge cautiously. Yes, madam. Double all the bills this afternoon. Yes, madam. In the back room, one of the girls started the old screaming routine again. Heloise's nostrils flared. If that dog... The scream whooped down the corridor in their direction, and then the door of the anteroom burst open. Gad, said Humphrey in an awed murmur. The screamer was pink and enormous and bare as the day she was born. Murder! She squalled at them. Murder! She collapsed then in a suety, quivering heap. Gad! said Humphrey, even more awed. A white-clad assistant came down the hall, carrying a sheet. She dropped the sheet over the screamer, and the sheet began to quiver uncannily, too. Madam, said the attendant, there is a corpse in one of the massage rooms. What? said Humphrey, suddenly coming to. What was that? Is it a customer? Heloise asked. Yes, madam. Hey! said Humphrey. Corpse, did I hear you say? Corpse. Heloise stepped over the quivering sheet and started down the corridor. What number? Seven, madam. Here, said Humphrey. He darted after Heloise, tugging Doan along in his wake. Eric Trent got up from the lounge and followed them. Heloise went to the right at the first turn and to the right again, and then stopped and pushed open a white curtain. It was a room similar to the one Melissa had used, except that in this one a long white rubbing table with gleaming tubular legs was fastened to the floor under the drop light in the center. There was a woman lying on the table, completely covered with a massage sheet except for her bony beaked face and her long crook-toed feet. Her tongue was sticking out in a last sardonic gesture of defiance. She was laid out just as though she were in a morgue, and she was just as dead. 
It's the old scrawny dame, Humphrey blurted. He jerked on the handcuffs. What's her name? Beulah Porter Cowis, said Doan. Heloise stepped forward and pulled the sheet down a little. They could all see the spreading blue-black splotches on the lined throat. Strangled, said Eric Trent. Humphrey shot out a pointed finger. And you were here at the time. I've had an eye on you all the time, bub. You were afraid the old scrawny dame would squawk to your wife about you and that Melissa number. And so you followed her here and planted Doan outside for a lookout and sicked that damned car stairs on the customers to create a riot. And then you wrung her neck for her. What's your name? Heloise asked coldly. Huh? Humphrey. He's the same one, said Doan. Heloise walked over to the couch and picked up the telephone. Give me the sheriff's office, his headquarters. That's not going to do you one bit of good, Humphrey informed her, because this is a very clear-cut case of conspiracy to... Heloise spoke into the telephone. Hello, this is Heloise of Hollywood. I want to speak to your boss. Hello, Mouthy. This is Heloise. I had some of my friends speak to you last night about one of your trained apes. He's here at my place now, annoying me. I'm getting a little tired of this character, Mouthy. I want you to talk to him. This time, make things clear. She held out the phone toward Humphrey. Humphrey took it gingerly. Hello? The phone buzzed at him like a rattlesnake. Yes, sir. But, yes, sir. But I, yes, sir. No, sir. But there's been another murder right here in, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The phone popped and quit rattling. Well, said Heloise, have you got things straight now? Yes, ma'am, said Humphrey soberly. Two uniformed deputies from one of the sheriff's radio prowl cars shouldered into the room. Oh, hello, said one of them, recognizing Humphrey. Some dame phoned in and said there was a murder. Shut up, said Humphrey. Don't even mention the word. It's all a mistake. That dame here committed suicide. Huh? said the deputy. Suicide? She's got finger marks on her gullet. So she choked herself to death. Humphrey snarled. Is it any of your business? Do you want to disturb the customers? Beat it. Go home. The deputies backed off reluctantly. One said, well, we'll have to make a report. Yeah, said Humphrey to the sheriff, and I want to be right there when you do. I want to hear that. I'm coming with you now. He started down the hall. Doan jerked him to a halt. I don't want to walk around with you anymore. You'll walk or get carried. Wait a minute, said Trent. What did you arrest him for this time? For loitering and suspicion of grand larceny, Otto. He was loafing out in front of a car that wasn't his. That's my car, said Trent, and I told him to wait in it while I was here. Take those handcuffs off him, said Heloise. Yes, ma'am, said Humphrey, obeying. Get out, said Heloise, and stay out. Yes, ma'am, said Humphrey. 
The shadows were stretching long and thin over the mathematical segments of lawn when Doan and Eric Trent walked diagonally across the quad. They found Humphrey sitting and brooding on the front steps of Old Kem. He was hunched up, with his chin resting grimly in his hands. He looked like he had been sitting for quite some time and intended to keep on doing it until he got what he wanted. <laughs> Look who's loitering now, Doan said. Shut up said Humphrey. He was watching Trent. What are you doing here? You've got no classes at this hour of day. I don't think it's any of your business, Trent informed him, but I don't mind telling you I came over to take a sundown reading on my instruments. What instruments? Various weather recording instruments. You wouldn't know what they were if I told you. What are you doing here? Doan inquired. Humphrey nodded at him. You're a very clever lad, Doan. This is so sudden, said Doan. Yeah, you're clever, and you've got lots of heavy artillery in the shape of influence lined up behind you. But I'm clever, too. No kidding, Doan asked, surprised. Yep, and I'm mad. Dear me, said Doan. And I've got an idea. Oh, boy. Do you want to hear it? Nope. You're going to, though, said Humphrey. My idea of this is Melissa Gregory. Why don't you just relax for a while, Humphrey? Shut up. Melissa Gregory is at the bottom of this pileup, and you're not going to lure me off on any of your false trails. I suppose she popped herself on the jaw. No, I don't mean she's the murderer. I mean she's the motive. Trent is the one who popped her. What? said Trent incredulously. Are you saying I popped her? Now look here, you. You can't go around making accusations like that about me or about Melissa either. She's a nice girl, and I won't stand for anybody talking about her. I knew it. I knew it, Humphrey chortled. You're taking up for her, and that means only one thing. You're crazy for her. I am, said Trent. For her? Yep. This business about your wife hiring Doan to watch you is a gag. Your wife is completely in your power. She does exactly what you tell her and nothing else. She wouldn't dare hire a detective to watch you. This one is going to be really something extra, Doan observed. Keep on, Humphrey. Your wife may be paying Doan, Humphrey said to Trent. But it's you who tells him what to do, and what you told him to do this time was to watch Melissa Gregory. Why? Trent asked blankly. I told you. You're crazy for her, and you suspected she was falling for this Frank Ames, and there wasn't any masked prowler last night. You have the key to her apartment, and you were waiting for her when she came home. You popped her one before going out with Ames. I did this? Trent asked, stunned. Yes, you. She squawked before you popped her, and this Beulah Porter cowards came blundering in and saw and heard enough to know what really happened. You called the cops about an attempt to cover things up with that nutwagon story about a guy with his head in a silk stocking. You didn't fool Beulah Porter cowards any. She went over to Hollywood this afternoon to shake your wife down by telling your wife about you and Melissa Gregory. She wouldn't have gotten any change out of your wife, like I said, but you had to knock her off anyway because Doan had knocked off Ames and that Beulah Porter Cowes might have sounded off about that. 
I wondered when I was going to appear in this, Doan observed. You'd been following Ames and Melissa, Humphrey told him. You were out in front of the building lurking around like you usually are. Ames saw or heard something and he got out of his car, intending to go up and take this Trent all apart for batting Melissa Gregory around. That damned dog of yours took out after Ames and ran him into the alley and cornered him, and you cut Ames' throat. Who shot at me? Nobody. You had two guns. You fired one off in the air and then gave it to that damned car stairs and he buried it in one of those vacant lots around there. I congratulate you, Humphrey, said Doan. This is incredible, Trent choked. This is the most absolutely fantastic tissue of criminal nonsense I've ever listened to. That's all right, bub, said Humphrey, nodding at him meaningfully. I just wanted you to know I'm on to you, and I always get my man. Crime doesn't pay, Doan added. Something slid through the air between Trent and Doan with an ugly slicing hiss. It hit the sidewalk right at Trent's feet and shattered into shrapnel-like splinters. It was a heavy, grooved roof tile. Gug, said Humphrey, staring up. Just remember, said Doan, also looking up, that Trent didn't throw that tile, and neither did I. Ah, said Humphrey. Nobody threw. Somebody yelled, though. It sounded thin and high and far away. Glass tinkled faintly. My instruments, Trent gasped. He lunged up the steps. Wait a minute, you, Humphrey shouted. He tore into the hall and up the stairs after Trent, flipping up his coattails and fumbling for the revolver in his hip pocket. Doan spun on his heel and ran back along the side of the building. He had his revolver out. The turf was soft and spongy and silent under his heels. He shoved heedlessly through a hedge and faced the narrow, shadowed rear door of the building. He waited, puffing a little. Nothing happened. Nothing came out. And then a snarling, half-muffled uproar drifted down to him. Humphrey's yapping voice rode down on the crest of it. Doan darted inside the building. He found the narrowly twisting back stairs and went up them four at a time. He whirled around a corner at the top and out into the main upper corridor and ran down it toward Melissa's old office. He stopped short in the doorway. The office was well on its way to being torn to pieces. Morales and Professor Slay Meinick occupied the vortex of a sort of a whirlpool in the middle of it, caroming first one way and then the other and screeching like men possessed. Professor Slay Meinick had a constrictor-like grip around Morales's waist. Morales was pounding him on the top of the head with both fists and trying to kick him at the same time. Trent and Humphrey ran around and around the two of them, trying to get a grip somewhere. Doan fired his revolver at the ceiling, and for the space of a heartbeat the furious action froze dead still. Then Humphrey got Morales by the neck. What do you think you're doing? What goes on? He shook Morales like a rag. Trent was trying to disengage Professor Slay Meinick. The blubbery man's glasses were gone, trampled underfoot, and his fat face was twisted hideously, lumpy mustache twitching and writhing like a live thing. What is it? Trent demanded. What happened? Professor Slay Meinick collapsed into a half-sitting position. Guy, Mr. Polesi, 
he cried, pointing a wavering finger at Morellas. Geheimster Polesi, ya, ya! Christian pig, Morellas spat at him. Humphrey shook him again. Shut up. What's the old guy saying? Geheimstadt Polizei is German, Trent said, puzzled. It means German state security police, I think. Sure, said Doan, the Gestapo. Gestapo, Humphrey repeated. Them guys is all in jail or hung or something. Nine, Professor Slaymeinick screamed. No, he is him, that one. Offspring of a she-dog, said Morales. Humphrey gave him another shake. Keep your trap shut or you're going to be missing some teeth. Trent asked the fat guy what's going on. Professor Slaymeinick swallowed, groping furiously for words. Always they do it. Yes, Geheimstadt Poletti. They break things, smash them, scientific things. They did mine in Hungary. Now he does it. This one. He smashes them on the roof. Yes, yes, believe me, I saw him on the roof. My instruments, Trent blurted. The stepladder was still propped up in the corner under the square trap door in the ceiling. Trent swarmed up it and squirmed through and out of sight. Instantly, his face reappeared, red and congested, peering down at them. My barometer and my anemometer are smashed, and there is something in my precipitation calibrator that certainly isn't due. Yes, yes, said Professor Slaymeinick. I told you, always they do it, Geheimstadt Polizei. Always they smash and break scientific instruments. Trent slid down the ladder. He advanced on Morales with his eyes narrowed dangerously and his upper lip lifted at one corner. Humphrey jerked Morales away. Get away from him, he warned Trent, or I'll slap you one with this pistol. I'm running this bazaar. This crumb bum doesn't look like any Gestapo to me. Did you smash those instruments and shy a tile at Trent, dope? Yes, said Morales. Humphrey stared at him, taken aback. You did? Well, what the hell for? He is a blasphemer. Huh? said Humphrey. What? said Trent. What am I? A pig, said Morales. A blasphemous, illegitimate, Christian pig. Well, why? said Trent. What did I do? Your existence and your pretensions are an impious mockery. By your very presence, you deny the existence of Kezatapekez. Who? said Humphrey gruggily. What? Kezatapekez, said Trent. That sounds like an Aztec word. Mayan illiterate fool, Morales snapped. Kazatapekez is the great and only lord of Tegucigalpa, lord of the dark sky and the thunderbird. And you, you attempt to read his mind and predict his moods. I can do that. Only I, a hereditary priest of the clan of Tegucigalpa. Where does Maximilian come into this? Don inquired. Fa, 
I spit on his name. I use it only to mock Christian pigs. This guy is a nut, Humphrey stated. I can see that without going any further. He should be locked up, and that's just what's going to happen to him. Come on now, screw loose, or you'll think the Thunderbird laid an egg right on your noggin. I'm coming along, too, said Doan. Take care of Slay Minick, Trent. I'll holler up some help for you below decks. What was that the old guy was yipping about the Gestapo? Humphrey asked. They pinched him once, Doan explained. They evidently wrecked his laboratory as well as him when they did it. When he saw Morales working out on Trent's instruments, he made a connection. There are too many nuts around here, Humphrey said darkly, and them that ain't are worse. What do you want to come along with me for? You're going to succeed in arresting me sooner or later. I want to see what kind of service I can expect. Besides, this guy strikes me as sort of violent. Maybe you'll need some help. And I suppose you'd give me some if I did. You'd be surprised. Oh, no, I wouldn't, said Humphrey.